On the 19th of November 1992, two little boys aged six and four knocked on the door of a lone house near to Cobb County, Georgia. The homeowner unlocked the door and found two brothers staring up at him, covered in blood. This is Red Rum, stories about the true victims of crime. Episode 68, Sarah Ambrusco. The homeowner was completely shocked to find these two boys out on their own and rushed to help them. He called his friend and asked him to come with him as he headed over the field and towards the car. When they arrived, they found what appeared to be the body of a young woman. Though it was hard to tell, the murder had been brutal and there was no way of recognising any of the features on her face. Police officers soon arrived and identified the woman by means of the little boy's testimony and the contents of her purse. The fact that her purse and car had been left behind ruled out robbery. The fact that her two young sons had been present made things trickier. Who would have chosen to possibly abduct and definitely murder a woman who had her two young children in the car with her? It was a question the officers would soon have an answer to as soon as they started digging into who the woman was. Sarah Ambrusco was born into a family of seven girls in New York. She and her sisters were very close, and even though the following years into early adulthood would see them forge their own paths outside of the state, they would see each other often and remained close. Sarah had been living in Florida, working as an elementary school teacher before moving to a small suburb of Atlanta, Georgia, to marry and change jobs. She worked at her husband's club, teaching aerobics rather than children, and enjoyed her life. But she and her first husband were driven apart and were divorced by the time she was 30, but she wanted to stay close by. She built a life here and before long had become an established marketing director for the well-known Northside Club Elan. Working at the club meant that every day, Sarah was surrounded by younger people enjoying their early and mid-twenties, and it started to make her feel old. She was only 31, but she was acutely aware that she'd been divorced, didn't have a partner, and was no closer to having children, something she'd wanted for as long as she could remember. Whoever she decided to settle down with would have to be on board for having children with her. That was the most important thing in her life. One night, after a long day at work, Sarah settled down in front of the TV and began to watch the evening's news. She saw a news story reporting the brutal murder of a lawyer based in Atlanta. The junior prosecutor assisting on the case was a man that she knew when they were both attending the same high school way back when. His name was Frederick Tokars, but she knew him as Fred. And before she knew it, Sarah was at the phone dialing his number. Fred answered and the pair caught up on life. They'd never really known each other well, but during that phone call, they realised they actually had quite a lot in common. They decided they should go on a date, which they did and things went well. Fred reminded Sarah of home. He was someone she'd known in childhood and it gave her the feeling of safety and security. She liked being around him and it really wasn't long before the dates turned more serious and soon they were engaged to be married. They got married within the year and a little while after their marriage, they had a baby boy who they called Ricky. Then Fred quit his job to start up a new law practice where he became a target for federal investigations they thought he might be doing some dodgy things. For one, 
He wrote an article claiming that new laws meant that attorneys often laundered money without knowing it. And Sarah noticed more often than not, when defending criminals, Fred was paid in cash. But around the time Fred was being looked into by federal investigators, the nightlife in Atlanta was experiencing a major decline and Sarah lost her job as marketing director. That meant the family did need money to maintain the lifestyle they'd become used to and, alongside this, Fred became more controlling. He insisted that he should be in charge of the finances. He would give Sarah a monthly allowance but she wasn't to have her own bank accounts. And he even made areas of their shared house off-limits to her, mainly the basement where he kept the safe and secretive files. He also rarely came home after work, often telling Sarah he just had to work late, but it was clear to her that he probably wasn't just working late. On top of this, Fred had become physically and emotionally abusive. But as many marriages do, even when things were tricky or ultimately unhealthy, the couple continued life and to the outside eye seemed as though they were a normal, happy couple with very few problems. In 1988, the family became one bigger when Sarah gave birth to another baby boy, who she called Michael. It wasn't long after the birth of Michael that Sarah began to suspect Fred was cheating on her. She did look into divorcing him, but Fred had made it very clear. If she did, he would take the children. He had the contacts and the legal know-how, he said, to do whatever he wanted, and he wouldn't let her have the children. Sarah was smart. She knew he might be all talk, but she couldn't be sure. She needed to get some kind of leverage on Fred. So she hired a private detective to look into him so that she could gather information she could use against him in the divorce and ultimately so she could take her children. Sarah called the private detective one afternoon and asked him to come round to the house. She'd broken into her husband's secret basement and managed to get into the safe where she showed the private detective what she'd found. But the detective said he couldn't do anything. To take anything from the safe or basement would be breaking the law, but he suggested she could always take the documents and bags and pills to the police and ask them to identify exactly what they were. Even though it wasn't apparent at the time, these documents were proof of a money laundering scheme Fred had developed by creating offshore shell bank accounts used by his drug dealing clients. Unfortunately, even though she found lots of evidence against Fred showing he was having an affair with a woman, it soon became clear to her that there wasn't enough evidence to prove that he was an unfit father, and so it wasn't anywhere near guaranteed that she could get custody of the children. She was still worried that a divorce could even end in her losing the children because of Fred's connections. With that, Sarah knew she'd have to wait it out for a bit. She stayed home, raising Ricky and Michael, and even got a puppy for them. Their dog, Jake, would become a bit of a hero over the following Thanksgiving period. One night, Sarah was sleeping in her bed with her two sons. Fred happened to be away for work that night and she had heard the dog Jake barking wildly. By the time she went to investigate, Jake had stopped barking and everything seemed to be okay in the house. What she didn't know at that time was that a 22-year-old small-time criminal, Curtis Alfonso Roa, who was out on probation at the time, crept into the family house. He was with a man called Eddie Lawrence, who had promised Curtis $5,000 to kill Sarah. 
Eddie also knew things about the house that only someone familiar with the house would have known. He knew that Fred wouldn't be home. He knew that Sarah and her two sons would be sleeping in the same bed. He knew that the burglar alarm had been experiencing problems over the previous few weeks, and so on that night, it was turned off. And most importantly, he knew that the lock on the sliding glass door was broken and meant the house was constantly unlocked and an easy access point into the house. Eddie Lawrence, the man who knew all of this information and had promised to pay Curtis, was also Fred's business partner. Eddie Lawrence was known to law enforcement. He was a drug dealer who would buy property and then rent that property out and often found himself in interrogation rooms. A lot of his time down at the station would be to do with his legal battles with the property he owned and quite early on he'd sought the help of Fred. The two got on very well and actually decided to go into business together in 1990, partnering on running the Parrot Club. The Parrot was a nightclub that had initially been run by Fred and two men called James Mason and Billy Carter. Those two men were, according to federal court documents, acting as frontmen for two other men who weren't able to own a club because of their criminal records. One of those men was Eddie Lawrence. On the 29th of November 1992, Sarah had been visiting her parents for Thanksgiving and she and the two boys had hung out until it was the evening. It was around 10pm when Sarah, Ricky and Michael arrived home. Michael was still asleep on the back seat of the car as she, Ricky and the dog, Jake, headed for the front door. But then, a man wearing a black beanie hat and holding a sawed-off shotgun appeared in front of them. He ordered them to get back inside the car and as he did so, he kicked the barking dog out of the way. He got into the car behind Sarah and sat in the back seat next to Michael, who was still fast asleep. Sarah begged the man not to hurt her or the children. She'd do whatever he needed. She offered him the car and her purse, but that wasn't what the man was here for. He told Sarah to drive, and just about half a mile away from the family home, the man ordered her to come to a stop. There was some kind of commotion, and the man in the back seat pulled the trigger in a state of panic. Sarah died instantly. He then jumped out of the car, which had continued rolling forward slowly, and the boys had waited until the car came to a stop in a field nearby. Ricky, the eldest at just six, turned the key in the ignition to stop the car and pulled his brother towards him. Ricky and Michael escaped the car and ran through the fields towards the nearest house where they knocked on a door. The homeowner opened up and found the eldest, Ricky, staring back at him, covered in blood. Ricky went on to say, quote, A bad man shot my mum with a pirate gun. The police were called and identified Sarah quickly. They also discovered that her husband was the well-known local lawyer, Frederick Tokars. At the crime scene, there were a number of fingerprints found, but not a whole lot of other forensic evidence. In 1992, it wasn't impossible, but it was a lot harder to identify and link DNA evidence. And in the car, they couldn't find much other evidence to point to who might be the perpetrator. It was clear the crime had been committed quickly and efficiently. The crime scene didn't give many clues, but the scene back at the kidnapping site, the house, did. The back door handle had been reversed, a clear way to make it impossible to lock properly from the inside. And on top of that, 
Officers soon learnt from Sarah's family and friends that the family home had the alarm system turned off and a broken lock, meaning the house was always accessible from the outside. And they learnt that Sarah was having a tough time at home and in her marriage. When officers interviewed Sarah's husband, Fred, they noticed pretty early on that he smelt of alcohol. When they questioned him about this, his lawyer said he'd given Fred a couple of beers just to calm him down. He was in a state of shock and absolute devastation. But this was odd to the officers. The lawyer and Fred knew he would be asked a number of serious and extremely important questions where details were imperative to help with the investigation. Having had a few beers to calm his nerves would only hinder the investigation, not help it. Fred was adamant that this was probably just some random act of violence. It happened all the time in Atlanta, he said. But of course, this wasn't Atlanta. This was Cobb County, and the victim was a stay-at-home mother of two. Officers found it odd how seemingly uninterested Fred was in helping solve his wife's murder. Fred made sure to back himself up before anyone else could get to him, and he told the media that he and Sarah had been having marital issues, and that he'd been well aware of Sarah hiring that private detective to look into him. He said he knew that she'd found out about the affair he was having, and he added that he and Sarah had worked things out. Their marriage, by his account, was back on track by the time of the murder. But the detectives had been doing background research on Fred, and it really hadn't taken long for them to understand the dealings he had with the criminal underworld. When the detectives told Fred they knew what he'd been up to, and showed him a photograph of his business partner, Eddie Lawrence, Fred stopped talking. But the detectives continued, saying they thought Fred had put out a hit on Sarah. They clarified that they knew he'd been in a rush to have her killed soon, because he was under investigation for money laundering, and one of his client's wives had just been called to testify. If Sarah was called to testify, which she likely would be, there was no telling how much she'd say, and he couldn't risk that to himself, his criminal friends and clients, and to the lifestyle he'd come accustomed to. Despite all of this against Fred, officers didn't have enough to keep him just yet, and so he was released from questioning, and the detectives continued to build their case. Meanwhile, Fred took his two sons and fled the country across the border to Canada. Sarah's family were desperately trying to get custody of Ricky and Michael. They had no doubt that Fred was responsible for Sarah's murder and it was extremely dangerous for the two boys to be in their dad's care, but there wasn't a lot that they could do at this point. Whilst in Canada, Fred could see the end was coming and he had attempted to end his life, but failing that, he was brought back to the US and charged with money laundering and for the murder of Sarah. And so the case went to trial. It turned out there was quite a lot of evidence against Fred after all. Before Sarah's death, Fred had taken out new life insurance policies on her, which added up to $1.75 million if they all paid out. He desperately needed this amount of money to cover the $700,000 of missing drugs money he had allegedly laundered. And the man who had allegedly pulled the trigger, Curtis Alfonso Roa, had used the $5,000 he'd been paid to buy drugs and had ended up telling a lot of people about what he'd done and many of the details of how it had happened. Over those following weeks and months, 
A number of witnesses in Curtis's circles were questioned and detectives began to build their case against Curtis, Eddie and Fred. Curtis wasn't up for denying what had happened and going to trial, so he admitted what he'd done pretty quickly, and a statement to his then-girlfriend corroborated his account. Although, Curtis's lawyer argued that Eddie was also inside the car, and so it could have been him that pulled the trigger, not Curtis. Another link that came to light during the trial was that the woman Fred had been having an affair with whilst married to Sarah was one of Eddie's employees. The woman had testified that Fred had told her how done he was with his marriage and how sick he was of Sarah. He added that he wanted to find a way to get rid of her. Over the years of business partnerships together, Eddie owed Fred around $70,000, money that he just didn't have. And so, he said, when Fred told him he wanted his wife dead, he said he could write off that entire debt and he'd pay him an additional $25,000 to make it happen. Eddie eventually agreed, but decided that he couldn't kill Sarah himself. He knew her. He'd been round to the family house. She'd made him dinner. He decided instead to hire someone, which is when he got in contact with Curtis Alfonso Roa, who he knew wouldn't say no to the job. It's not like Curtis had ever killed before, but he had a drug addiction and Eddie knew he would do anything for that kind of money. Curtis's first trial ended in a mistrial, and during that time, Eddie took a plea deal, which meant that despite hiring the eventual hitman and being the go-between who Curtis alleged was actually there on the night of the murder, Eddie was sentenced to just 12 years. Curtis's new trial saw him sentenced to life without parole. Sarah's family pushed for Fred to receive the death sentence, but ultimately, he was sentenced to life for money laundering charges and life for Sarah's murder. In 1999, Fred was transferred to a prison in Wisconsin, where he met with a man called Robert Ortloff. Whilst in that prison, Fred and Robert became acquaintances, and in July of that same year, Fred told police that Robert had confessed to murdering 20-year-old Kathleen Smith back in 1984. Fred said of Robert, quote, He finally admitted that, yes, I was involved, but it was an accident. I didn't mean to do it and I had to cover it up. Robert allegedly said he did it because of jealousy and money. Although Fred said at another time, Robert had told him he'd planned on doing it and brought gloves and a rope with him, but ultimately the crime hadn't gone that way. That testimony was integral in the following trial. I'm covering that case in next week's episode of Red Rum, so I'll link it in the show notes below once it's out. Even with all of that, the most Fred got for his testimony was a placement in another prison and he was placed on witness protection. Fred suffered from MS and died in May 2020, aged 67. Sarah's two sons were raised by her sister and parents in Florida before her mum's death in 1998 and her dad's death in 2002. Sarah's mum and dad were eventually buried in the same plot as her in New York. Sarah's sister continued to raise Ricky and Michael until Ricky went off to San Diego to attend college to become an emergency medical technician. Sarah's youngest son Michael graduated from Columbia but sadly passed away in April 2020 from a pulmonary embolism. <laughs> 